You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Before we start, though, I want to say one thing, which is it's, it's really important to create a suspension of disbelief, you know, for these kinds of events. So I'd really like it if you all, while you're sitting out there tonight watching, I'd like you to pretend that my black pants are not covered with dog hair, okay? So just, you know, to kind of give us all that feeling that we're doing some high class kind of event or something like that. I have my dog hair, too. Yeah, I know. So see, you wear black with a white or a bicolored dog. Oh, thank you. See, well, then pretend I never said that. That'll add to the whole thing, too. We only wish we had dog hair. Ladies and gentlemen, we are privileged to have with us tonight two of America's finest fantasy writers and two of America's finest writers, period, if you've read any of their work. Um, we have, okay, stop that. Hang on. What we have, is this damn thing, is this damn thing on? There. I'll, I'll, I'll finish the introduction. And just, in fact, two of America's finest human beings. You know? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Uh, with me tonight is Tad Williams. He's the creator of the classic fantasy trilogy, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, and the two Green Angel Tower novels, Siege and Storm, the Otherland series, the Shadow March series, the novels, The War of the Flowers, and Caliban's Hour. With his wife, Deborah, he wrote The Dragons of Ordinary Farm and The Secrets of Ordinary Farm, and Deborah also launched the classic to me and close to my heart legend series of novellas, and this is, plays an important part in the reason she's even here this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tad Williams and Deborah Beale. Um, will you read for us first? Yes, happily. Um, shall I just kick off with a reading? Kick it off. Let's, let's hear <laughs> okay. it. Okay. Well, um, I'll tell you a little bit about the Ordinary Farm novels. Um, they are our love song to California. Um, very much so for me. I wanted to write something that uh, is a fantasy that arises out of the landscapes and the magic that I feel about the place and the fact that I am never bored. Um, well, I, I get bored on the five, but, but every other part of America, of uh, California that I'm driving around, um, I'm just, I, I just am fascinated by the landscapes. That we, we call the novels our all ages fantasy um, because we uh, really sort of we purposefully design them for family reading, although um, we think that they're um, very adult in in many ways. Um, but they have two child protagonists, and Ordinary Farm itself is um, that the, the children uh, are uh, possibly going to inherit their great uncle's farm, which turns out to be not the boring dump in the wilderness that they suspect it is, but when they get there, they discover that the program, the animal program at the farm is mythic animals and that their uncle has been raising and breeding them. Um, the first book is very much about where these animals come from. 
that's the dragons of ordinary farm. Or the mystery of where they come from. Yes, the mystery of where they come from. The second book is about the struggle against um, Mrs. Needle, who is the farm's witch apothecary. She's a blessings witch. She works with green magic. She also is uh, profoundly steeped in black magic. And her alienated, abused son, Colin. And they are the two who want to take the farm from the great uncle. And um, they live there. They, they've been there since before Tyler and Lucinda, the two young children, first visited. So they are, they are inhabitants of the farm. And they come from, as we find out, the, the same place as the animals do. And um, the section I'm going to read is about Tyler, the young boy, and he is um, searching for the male dragon's nest. Um, I'm not going to tell you why he's searching for it, but it is a deadly search, and it is um, very much against his, uh, his, the interests of his enemy, Colin Needle. So I think that's sort of just about enough, and we'll just go into it. It took Tyler about a good part of an hour to cross the farm and reach the area, area where most of the Alamu, that's the male dragon Alamu, where most of the Alamu reports seemed to overlap, a group of low hills, the tallest of which was called, according to his marked-up country map, Miner's Mountain. He decided that since none of them were very high, Miner's Mountain would be his best bet and he started climbing. The late morning sun was already baking the ground and the dry grasses were buzzing with insect noises. By the time he'd reached the top, he'd emptied half his canteen. By the time he finished his bologna sandwich, he'd drunk most of the rest. The scrubby trees on the hillside didn't provide much shade either. An hour later, he had finished all his water had watched the sun move across the valley like someone wiping a window clean and stared through his binoculars until his eyes hurt, but still he hadn't seen anything that looked like a dragon's nest. He had also discovered that some of the bugs singing in the dry grass liked to bite people, liked it quite a lot, and so he was beginning to rethink the entire expedition when he noticed something glimmering in a fold of the hill next to Miner's Mountain. Even with the binoculars, he couldn't make out much more than glinting in the undergrowth on the hillside. So he didn't leap up. He'd already been fooled a couple of times by other shining things. Discarded bottles, glass insulators from power lines. But although he stared and stared through the expensive binoculars his father had given him as a guilty late birthday gift, this one remained stubbornly mysterious. Tyler finally decided that although it was already mid-afternoon, he wanted to go down Miner's Mountain and go climb the other hill. Who knew when he'd get this much free time again? Tyler didn't know the name of this second hill. He didn't even know if it had a name, but discovered quickly that although it was not as tall as Miner's Mountain, it was actually a much more difficult climb, with no obvious trail and the way up blocked by outcrops of layered stone that looked like haphazard piles of books. Each outcropping took long, 
exhausting minutes to climb over all around. And by the time Tyler had got near the top, even more of the afternoon had slid away and the sun was hurrying down the sky like an animal going to ground behind the hills on the western side of the valley. For the first time, Tyler started to worry. He didn't want to have to climb down rocky, dangerous slopes in the darkness. He'd left the house so early, he hadn't even brought a flashlight. My sister's right. I do stupid things sometimes, he told himself angrily. At last, he climbed up over the last large bulge of pale stone and into the shade of a tangle of oak and madrone trees where he slumped for a rest, but forced himself to get up after only a couple of minutes. A, a hundred feet more up the uneven slope and then he stepped out onto the flat windshield summit of the hill. And there it was, just in front of him. Not just a single object, but a shining, sparkling line several feet long, snaking through a trail of trampled grass. He'd found it. Tyler's heart sped in triumph. He walked towards the glittering track carefully, looking high and low to make sure that no one, scaly or otherwise, was watching him. And there, shimmering in the late afternoon sun, glittering like a trail of jewels in the angled light, lay several hundred bottle caps scattered across the hillside like confetti. Huh? Tyler stood and stared, disbelief rapidly turning into fury. What was this crap? Was this it? The thing he'd been searching for all day? The thing he had climbed two high, hot hillsides to find? Crap, he said, kicking at one of the shiny things. Look at me, he shouted in disgust. I'm a hero. I've found the famous hoard of ancient bottle caps. <laughs> and they weren't even that ancient. Most of them looked like they were regular modern pop bottles. So they weren't even work, worth anything. He took a deep breath. Was this really Alamu's hoard of stolen shiny things? Bottle caps, a couple of shiny pennies and a few bits of foil. Disgusted and very tired, Tyler was about to admit defeat and head down the hill when he noticed the bottle caps weren't just scattered. Or at least they didn't look completely random, but strewn in a rough line. In places the line stopped completely, but as he squinted his eyes against the afternoon light, he could see that they did form a kind of trail across the hilltop, as if something had dropped them from a clumsy to the mouth. On the way to where? He squinted his eyes, then did his best to follow the almost invisible line, which petered out at the far side of the hillside, facing away from the farmhouse, so far away. He looked down and saw a flash of reflected light in a thicket about 20 yards down, yards down the steep slope, something very much larger than any bottle cap. He tried to be careful as he made his way down the slope towards the thicket, but he was hurrying now, racing the dying afternoon. As he got nearer, he saw that it was not just aimless growth of shrubs and small trees, but a pile of trees and sticks and branches almost 50 feet wide, the sticks covered with brown leaves, the whole mass propped between the trunks of several trees growing at an angle on the hillside. It was a nest. I found it, he thought. I was right. I did it all by myself. Tyler began to make his way down the slope, leaning so far backwards to keep his balance that half the time he just gave up and slid down on his butt. 
Alamu, whether from brains or instinct, had built his nest on the far side of the hill from the farmhouse, out of sight, with nothing but the trail of bottle claps on top to lead whoever it was supposed to impress. Meseret, the female dragon, pretty obviously, to where the real thing, the nest, was hidden just below the crest. As he got near the thicket, Tyler realised he was making a lot of noise and settled into a crouch. He hadn't seen any sign of Alamu, but he couldn't see the whole nest because of the trees and the angle of the hill, and he certainly didn't want to encounter an angry dragon on this naked hillside. Did dragons nap like cats? Lucinda would know. He should have asked his sister. The wind changed direction, and as the animal stench of the thing reached him, he realised he had been upwind of the nest all the time. If the dragon had been home, it would have smelled him a long time ago. He could almost hear Lucinda asking him whether he wanted to get eaten. The closer Tyler got, the stranger and more impressive the nest appeared, a huge shaped wedge between the trees like a bushy flower head. It might be hidden from the farmhouse, but Alamu had still built it right out in the open with the arrogance of its position at the top of the food chain and then filled it with its scavenged dragon treasures, hubcaps, bicycle wheels, a shiny aluminum crutch, wire fencing, garden furniture, all things that had glittered once, though many were rusted now. Tyler marvelled and wondered how long it had taken the dragon to collect so much junk with no way to carry it but claws and jaws. There was even a broken metallic Christmas tree like a toilet brush made of tinsel. <laughs> Jackpot! If Alamu... Ooh, next line, I hadn't better read that. He looked around for the dragon once more, then climbed carefully down into the nest, which swayed in a very alarming fashion. Tyler had to grab onto the dust-scoured fender of a tractor to keep himself upright, and several seconds passed before he was sure that the whole thing wouldn't slide down from between the trees and take him tobogganing down the hill in a pile of jagged, rusty metal. How did it support the dragon, which must weigh nearly a thousand pounds? He moved forward like a man crossing a frozen but thawing river, stopping at each unusual sound or movement behind him. And as he moved, he sifted cautiously through the dragon's treasures, bits of pipe, chrome from cars, the rusted remains of a giant ceiling fan as big as the propeller of an ocean liner. Tyler couldn't even imagine where Alamu had found that. Ow! Rotten lizard and his stupid trash! A pale face appeared over the side of the nest, sucking on a bloody finger. It was Colin Needle. He saw Tyler and a flurry of emotions passed over his face. Surprise, a little fear, but most of all, triumph. You! You creep! Tyler shouted. You followed me! Really? You figured that? You figured that out, did you, Jenkins? He rubbed his finger on the sleeve of his shirt and left a bloodied smear there. So what? I would have found the place myself if my mother hadn't made me do all those stupid, ch stupid chores first. Tyler began to clamber across the mat of branches and junk, st heading straight towards his enemy. Yeah, well, she'll have a chore of her own putting your face back on after I bit half of it off you. Colin's eyes widened. Stop! Right now! Why, said Tyler, you going to stop me? 
Colin looked more terrified than dangerous. Just stop, Jenkins. I'm serious. Behind you. Oh, nice one, Tyler said. Then the shadow fell over him and he whirled to see Alamu sweeping down on him from the hillside. Tyler tried to throw himself towards where Colin crouched at the edge of, his ed edge of the nest. He could hear Alamu's deep rumble of fury as the dragon darted its long head at him and just missed by inches. Then the orange and bronze monster swept past, wheeled in the air and hurtled back towards him again little pennants of fire trailing from its open mouth. Before Tyler could reach the far edge of the nest, the branches beneath his feet suddenly shuddered and collapsed. He tumbled free, everything crashing and spinning around him until a blow to the back of his head knocked him into roaring darkness. Thank you, that was magnificent. What a great reading and a beautiful oh. scene too. Stumbled all over the place. Oh, no. Well, that's why we have digital editing techniques. <laughs> digital <laughs> editing. Uh, fix it in the mix. That's something we can work for real life as well. Yeah. <laughs> I could just tweeze it back. Just roll yeah. life back 30 seconds and we'll make it so I never said that. Yeah. That would be very useful. It would be very useful. It makes me feel better that I do the same thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that gives us plenty to discuss. And I really love that. And, and I think one of the things that that comes right out of that is how grounded in realism your work in the fantastic is. That is exactly like many a hike I've had. Hot, nasty, stumbling <laughs> on trash. I mean, and what's interesting is that you make all the details, yeah, underprepared over here. Yes. <laughs> underprepared. You make all the details um, that seem most real to us, the bottle caps, the hubcaps, all that stuff builds up the character of the fantastic, the dragon. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think that's actually one of the most important things about writing the kind of stuff that, that we're talking about. Um, because where else is it, is it important to establish reality more than in a situation where you are going to completely, you know, com yeah, completely explode it and introduce things that we all know for certain or at least feel pretty certain or at least hope like hell are not real. Um, so, you know, I've always been a, a big believer in that, that, that the, the best fantasy and science fiction for me, um, or, or in fact any kind of, of uh, book that deals with the fantastical, because there's also, you know, ghost stories and everything, are those which are most firmly grounded in what feels real and that even then when we pass into the unreal, that, that there's a certain sense of, you know, once you've accepted everything else, if it's consonant with what's gone before, that it feels like, yes, I now believe it. Whereas if you just sort of say to somebody, okay, there was a, a dragon, or oh, there was a ghost, or whatever, you're asking them to leap past their normal way of, of assessing reality and just jump in with you. You can do that with a short story, but with the novel, I think it's always nice to, to, to move people into that feeling of realism. What was fun um, with these two novels also, very much talking about uh, fantastical arising from the real, was working out the biology of the mythic animals. Mm -hmm. And um, how we did that is, we're, I mean, we're both science freaks, we're both biology freaks, we read so much, we watch, uh, uh, of uh, you know, from everything from new scientists to biology today to 
we uh, watch a tremendous number of natural history programs and all of that just downloaded into the creatures themselves. Well, it was also, uh, you know, one of the things that writers do, um, I think most writers do, is that you find what you like best in the material that you're working with and you, you, you make it your own. And one of the things that I've always loved is, is figuring out how things work, or in other people's work, when they bring it to me in such a way that I go, oh, that's neat, I, yeah, that would make sense, I never thought of it. Um, I'll give you a very obvious example, which is only in the last 15 or 20 years in sort of mainstream uh, fantasy entertainment have we moved past the idea of, you know, the dragons, um, and, you know, I, I know, it's, it's like next I'm going to be talking about unicorns and we're going to just go right down the whole cliche. Our unicorns are nasty. <laughs> yeah, but, but that, that this idea that dragons, as they were sort of in like the old pictures, the medieval pictures and some others, you know, are these four-legged reptilian things with, with wings growing out of their back. Um, which makes a great picture, but it makes, if you're trying to posit dragons as something that would live in the real world, and even as in our books, and I'm giving something slightly away here, which is that these creatures are not from an imaginary place. They are real creatures. And so the first thing that, that, that occurs to one, and not, not to us first, it's occurred to other people as well, is that that doesn't make any evolutionary sense that a four-legged creature would grow wings out of its back. It's never happened before in, in, in the history of evolution. In, in virtually every case, what we've seen is that um, animals that are, are four-legged develop um, uh, specialized forelimbs four that become wings eventually. So whether they're birds or bats or virtually anything, um, that's where it happens. Or Bat Boy. Or Bat Boy, yes, yes. Can't forget Bat Boy. Um, I didn't know you were a News of the World reader. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, anyway, so, so the idea, and as I said, I mean, you started to see it about 20 years ago. I think actually it might have been, was it Dragon Slayer or one of those films where somebody finally went, yeah, let's imagine how a dragon would actually evolve. And they came up with the first idea of a dragon where the, the wings were part of the forelimbs. So that's a really obvious example that other people didn't think of, uh, that other people did think of first. Um, but what we've tried to do all along as we introduce these mythical animals or supposedly mythical animals is we've tried to find reasons to explain or to to make them feel like yes they could have existed at some point in some crazy earlier time on earth in some particular environment and and so that people will then feel like oh yeah okay I can see how that would work and we do it with unicorns. I won't give everything away. We do it with unicorns. We do it with a lot of other creatures too. And that bunyips was bunyips and manticores. Bunyips and manticores. Yeah. Oh, bunyips. And and all, marsupials. All hail the bunyips. Yes. Giant Australian marsupials. <laughs> yes. Which bunyips are, are are also in in Australian legendry, especially in the the mythology of the 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 Aboriginal peoples. They are. Uh, sort of demons or scary monsters and so we tried to come up with a way that they could be both demon stroke scary monsters and also real creatures. So that's been a big part of what's been fun as Deb said in the books. Well one of the things too I like is that um, they're not just animals, the characters to, to take them to take all these critters to the next step and make them characters is what is really important to us as readers because then we have yet another place we can kind of empathize with them and put them, you know, in a pantheon. You know, it's maybe not exactly the same as as the humans, but 
having as much presence, character presence. And as readers, that's really important. Um, that, that really derives from the fact that, that we're fascinated by um, animal intelligence and the, our developing understanding of animal intelligence. I, I would go further. I would say it's because... Dog people. Personally, we, yeah. are, we are besieged <laughs> by animal intelligence yeah. in our private lives. We, we, have, uh, we have tons of the things. Um, it, there is no simple family discussion uh, that involves just human beings. Everything has to take into account the fact that we've got four dogs, two cats, a turtle, a lizard, and a fish. And, um, you know, it's just extremely complicated. And various <laughs> insects at in some parts of the earth. Yeah, we have, we have insects sometimes, too. But um, Have you seen cockroaches? No, no, no. no. no, I, no although no. I wouldn't mind. No. I think they're quite no. fascinating. And I saw a wonderful thing the other day about a peacock spider, which I hadn't seen before. But we'll put that aside for a second. For the for the arachnophobic out there, we can talk about that personally, one on one, if you want. But but the but the thing is, is that when you live with animals, what whatever kind they are, but especially mammals, since that's what we're most close. That's what we are ourselves, and so we're closest to. Um, there's no doubt in your mind that 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 intelligence is not an on-off switch. You know, it's not like, oh, there's animals and then click, the light goes on, and then there's intelligent human beings. No, animals are on the same continuum that we're on. They have complexity. They have minds. They have reactions. And if you Some want to call those, language if you want to call that personality or emotion, then that's that's fine. But it's 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 only a question of where you draw your own personal lines. There is no question that the higher mammals are pretty much damn near as complex as we are. And that complexity expresses itself in a lot of ways that if they had language, um, it would really change all of human perception because we would not be as able to box them and put them aside as we are. Michael the gorilla, um, a friend of Coco, uh, uh, Another the, gorilla. The, the signing gorilla, he once, through sign, his, the sign language he'd been taught, told the story of his capture in the jungle um, and the story? slaughter. The, he told what, happened to, what happened to him and the slaughter of his mother and how he was taken as a young gorilla. And it was But he told terrible. this to people who were in America, and he had been taken in Africa. In Woodside. In Woodside, yeah, near where yeah. we used to live. Yeah. So he was not, he was not, these, yeah. these were not people who, who were familiar with what had happened. They were literally being told by another being of an experience, a tragic experience, life-changing experience that that other being had had before it knew them. And, I mean, at a certain point you have to say, there, well, there is no line. There is no obvious line between them it's a gradient, and us. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not just not just not just apes. I mean, uh, many of you I know uh, are familiar with how some of the really intelligent birds are. And um, I, I, they, they did a series. Just one last thing on this because this fascinated me. They did an experiment, um, and I can't remember which lab it was, but they were they were testing uh, raven intelligence, and. Um, one of the things that they did was they, um, they had uh, food at the bottom of a, a glass tube that the raven could not reach. Um, actually, there were two different ravens that were involved in this one particular experiment, a male raven and a female raven. So they had a little piece of meat down at the bottom of a glass tube, and there were a couple of pieces of, of uh, strips of metal, like, like thick wire that were lying around in the enclosure. And one of them had a hook on the end. And the, um, 
the, the Ravens eventually learned or knew or figured out how to use the, the metal with a little hook on the end to pull the meat up. But this is not the cool part. So then they introduced some new thing into the experiment. I can't remember what it was, and it's not particularly important. But in the pro and they put the male raven in first to, to try this new, I think it was a tool. Um, so the male raven was doing his best to, to pick the, the tool up and get it down into the glass and pick the food out with his beak, of course. And he dropped it. And it fell down off the table somewhere where it could not be reached by the ravens. So the female raven went and picked up one of the pieces of, of wire that was just straight and bent the end of it and then went and got the food out with that. Now, that's a bird. But, you know, if, if, as, if your kindergartner can figure that out, right, then you're going, hey, my kid's okay, you know, my kid's going to be <laughs> successful in this life. That is not a minor piece of thinking, not simply to use a tool, but to make or, or alter something else into a tool. Or imitate or yeah. learn. Well, but they hadn't seen anybody bending those things yeah. before. So yeah. it was seeing yeah. something and understanding that it could be changed or affected yeah. Yeah. to do the job the old one had done. So. Pretty amazing stuff. Anyway, I didn't want to no, hijack this completely, but I mean, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that fascinates us. And obviously, when we're writing about any kind of animals, but especially these big, fabulous, mythical ones, we're thinking about, you know, not just what they look like and do they eat people, but, you know, how do they think as well? What do they season the people with? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> do they share recipes? Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things you guys did with this book is work together. And this is the first time you guys have collaborated with anybody? Well, we, we, our two children are in the other room over there, so yeah. obviously we've collaborated, we've collaborated yeah. on a few it things. No, I mean, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always took your word for it. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about, I mean, have you, Ted, have either of you collaborated with somebody else in a way you, that you collaborated together? Well, I, my, interestingly, well, interesting to me anyway, is that my, my background, my creative background, I, for a long time, everything that I did was collaborative. Because I did, uh, well, not everything, but most of what I did. I was in theater, mm. did improv, I played in a rock and roll band, um, I, I did radio. So a lot of what I was doing was stuff that was involved working with other people, and I love that. But writing had been largely a solo thing. I did write one book with uh, Nina Kariki Hoffman, who's oh, right. a fabulous writer. But even that was kind of more like I had already written it. She added some stuff after we talked, and you know, and she did such a good job. I didn't really have to say, you know, oh, you should fix this or fix that. She's just a fine, fine writer. So this is the first real writing collaboration. I think that I've that I've had. Uh, how did that work out? I mean, how did you guys? She hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you mean, talk about it. <laughs> well, t tell us, Deborah. Did, did you start? Did you write the stuff first? Did you guys outline um, it, or did you just talk about it? Or we did. Uh, we. Um, Tad had the initial idea for, he said he wanted to write about, we, we'd been, I had been sort of saying to him for a while that I wanted to collaborate and I'd come up with a couple of ideas, um, but uh, nothing uh, really sort of stuck or flew. And then Tad said, oh, I, want, I would like to, I like the idea of writing about a, a, a California farm um, where the program is mythic. Mythic Beasts, and I've, and I've got a title for it, and it's The Dragons of Ordinary Farm, and that's where that started. And um, 
it was a very uh, stumbling process. I, I wrote a, a first draft of the first book, but I wrote it at Harry Potter length, basically. And um, it was, it, it just didn't fly. The later Harry Potter books, the really long ones. The tome, tome, tome length. Yeah. Yes, um, I just wrote this huge, huge baggy thing. And then um, basically it, we, we cut it all down. And our agent said to us, oh, it's got to be short. It's really got to be short. Um, and if you're going to do a series, da 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 da, let's just go for short because you know it's the first time that you're selling children's books and, and they'll want short rather than really big. And uh, so we, cu we cut it down and then Tad wrote, I wrote a, a short draft and then Tad rewrote it. Yeah, it just went back and forth, back and so forth. So you guys would, would, would alternate drafts? Yeah, pretty of the much. Whole book? That was okay. generally the idea that, uh -huh. that where, the, where the friction comes is that um, I am, well, anybody who's read my work will, can, can probably guess. I mean, I'm very detail-oriented, mm -hmm. okay? And part of this comes um, uh, basically from the fact that I'm, like, kind of obsessive-compulsive. Um, you know, not, not, not to the point where, like, I can't leave the house or anything, you know? It's not, not like that. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm very much a detail-oriented guy, and, and I, like, have ideas about how things should work. And um, Deborah is, 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 her style is different, and, and our styles were very different. And I, was, I have also have this real thing of, like, before the book goes out, before something goes out, it's going to have our name on it. You know, it's got to be just, you know, just perfect. It has to be, you know, something that we're going to be living with for the rest of our lives. Shiny. Yeah. And, and so there were times when I leaned on Deb in some ways I think that she probably found to be a bit frustrating. Um, and there were times that I got frustrated. I mean, it's, you know, it's a marriage, you know, I mean, it's as well as a collaboration. There were times when I was frustrated because I didn't feel like she was seeing what I was trying to say, you know. But and for me, there's two things. I mean, this is the mechanics of collaboration. So there were two things going on, essentially. The first thing is that, um, as Tad said, we have very different methods, and that's really difficult to put together. Tad starts and he goes through an arc and he writes a complete story and he goes from start to finish. I'm a big reviser. I go backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, here and there, here and there, here and there. So at any one time, my stuff kind of just sort of grows up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And then somewhere around about there, it's, it's matured enough to be a real first draft. But at any one point in the process, it wasn't easy for me to take something to Tad and show it to him and have him not shout at me for unfinished work, essentially. <laughs> well, lean on me. I never shouted. Lean on me. Um, the second thing is, and this is a, this is a genuine difficulty, um, which I, I, I sort of really want to put out there because it, it's really very tough. I'm a decent enough writer. I am by instinct um, and by talent. What I am most of all is a journalist. I sort of went that way and became a book publisher, but I could have at key moments in my life gone that way and become a journalist. And where I um, really do very well as a writer is in nonfiction. I think that I'm a very strong nonfiction writer. I did a tremendous amount of ghost writing when I was a publisher. 
and that was great fun and easy peasy and that was a collaboration always it was a collaboration with um recalcitrant authors who hadn't delivered manuscripts on time basically and, and, it just, and they were very happy really to have most of them very happy to have the work taken off them so I'd just take it away and I'd, then I'd just write, the, write it and I'd, I loved that, loved that, loved that um, and that was very satisfying and everything always worked for me like that. Um, Tad is a fiction writer and he is a world-class talent. He, what he has is really only done by a few several hundred people in the world. And working alongside that is very difficult, is really hard. And there were times when it just kind of crimps your confidence and you end up sort of not doing anything. That was, that was a tough thing. Um, it, and know. I didn't, I mean, I, there were times when I didn't grow either, which, and it, it wore is, me down for it that. It is very difficult because it was, um, you know, it's hard when you're putting something, you know, when you want to get something put out to let the other person make the mistakes that they may need to make at their point in, sure, in that's the journey. A, that's right? an interesting I, I, I made my mistakes 20 years earlier, mm -hmm. and so what we were trying to, now, this said, I mean, we're also like anybody, you know, we're, we're trying to grow, we're trying to, you know, learn things as we go along. So we're also trying to figure out the best way to accomplish, not just doing the book, but both of us learning a, a way to collaborate and all this stuff at the same time, you know. And so a new genre for Yeah, too. so there's like multiple, yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, and on top of everything else, we also had disastrous publishing luck too, oh. which is, you know, that's like a whole story for another day. But that was on top of everything else. It was like we had, uh, you know, a, a wonderful publisher who bought the book and we were going to be their lead title. And within six months after that, just as we were finishing the book, um, that publisher and a whole bunch of others got killed, not killed, not literally killed, but, but there was a there was a big old sign. There was a corporate massacre at HarperCollins, and she, along with about eight, nine, ten other publishers, all just got fired all at the same time. Um, I mean, they called it something we else, were, but that's our, what it was. Our book was uh, there was was given to a publisher who um, had a list of seventeen hardback titles and their paperbacks a year, and she suddenly went from seventeen titles to about fifty-four. Right. Um, with no extra staff and the sword of Damocles hanging over her too. Right. So she and was she just... was not inclined to like us or have much patience with us or Yeah. So yeah. so so all uh, of this it was, was rough. <laughs> all of this was going on at one time. Which by the way, without going round and round about it too much, is one of the reasons we're we're actually in the United States, we're actually publishing the second um, we, we have published as yourself, yeah. As, yeah, as we as have an published yeah. the the second Dragons of Ordinary Farm book ourselves because that things got so complicated. And I've never done this before. I've always had really good relations with most of my publishers, but we finally just said, "Look, we'll 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 we need to take this book back," you know, because by that point it was clear that they didn't care, they weren't interested, they were stressed out in their. Own, I mean, not trying to make them the villains. It just wasn't going to work out at that point. So well, anyway, so that's 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 was also going on during all this collaboration. So on the one hand. Um, it, it was an interesting, um, I think the term, the technical term is an annealing process when you use extreme heat to make something stronger. Um, it was extremely complicated annealing process. Um, on the other hand, we're still sitting here side by side and we live in the same house. So, you know, it, it, it could have been worse. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Mission accomplished, yeah. Well, it's a fabulous book. And one thing I have to say is that 
I wouldn't know there were two people who wrote it. I mean, it just seems reads seamlessly and beautifully in that sense, and that's a remarkable accomplishment. We went back and forth, especially in the first yeah. one. There was yeah. a tremendous amount of back and forth to the point that yeah. we still have arguments over who came up with what idea. You know, <laughs> yeah. When, yeah. when somebody says, "Oh, I love that part," you know, then Deb's always going like, "Oh, I wrote that." I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa!" <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely sure of that. And then we have another one of our 20-minute discussions while everybody around us is going, "Oh shit, here they go again." <laughs> <laughs> well, now you guys are self-publishing, and this brings up something I'm, uh, I want to talk about a little bit about ebooks. And, and you know, one thing that struck me today is there's a lot of uh, parallels made, and with good reason, between what the publishing industry is going through today and what the music industry went through ten years ago. But there's one difference, and that is, ten years ago, the music industry, if I had a CD, all I needed was a free program, and I could turn that CD into MP3s. There's no easy way for me to turn even an ebook I have into another ebook that I can give to somebody else. That's still kind of a mysterious process. And if I have a hardcover, I can't do it. The most I can do is loan it to them. Yeah, it's, it's still very complicated. And Deb's been putting a lot of time into, I mean, because ultimately what we want to do, we don't necessarily want to, to, to self-publish, you know, everything. We'd rather, you know, we'd rather do what works best. Basically, mm -hmm. we still, most of our publishing is still through our normal publishers. Some of them we still have excellent relationships with, and you know, we, we have no big urge to try and rock that boat. You know, we're, but on the other hand, it, when you have a bad experience and you realize, hang on a second, I'm paying 70 or 80 percent of all the income off of this book to somebody. Um, who, especially as the, the electronic books and stuff start to become more popular, who are doing less and less, you know, the sure. publishers, um, all of a sudden the, 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 the mixture begins to seem a little curious, you yeah. know? And, and since even the publishers who mean well have been cutting back things like marketing and stuff like that in the last five, eight years. Um, not that the publishers are terribly effective marketeers. Not at their, but, but, but. No, I, I, the major, 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 major titles, yes, a good job. Well, but I mean, I'm, th I'm just even thinking but about no things like... there's no money for anything else. Well, yeah, like things like touring and stuff, which, you know, mm -hmm. they've, they've at least got the machinery mm -hmm. in place to, to mm -hmm. put together tours and things like that. But they've been doing less and less and less of it to the point now where, you know, it, it's just not non-existent, but it's much, much less of it happening. And the reason is, like everybody, when, when times get bad, you stop spreading yourself and you start concentrating and you go, well, you know, Stephen King still sells, sells books or, or uh, Patterson still sells books or, you know, whoever else and we'll put our money into that. And it's actually, it's a lot better for people like me because at least I'm established, you mm -hmm. know, whereas a lot of the new writers today um, are really having a difficult time trying to get actual publishers to work with them because it's just not very interesting to publishers to take risks because they don't have much to risk right now. Right. Now, um, can you tell me what you're working on right now, the, the two of you and each of you? and um, You start. Mm, well, I'll, I'll go longer than you, so okay. you start. Um, what I am, <laughs> what I'm writing at the moment, I'm not writing long-form fiction at the moment, um, uh, just because uh, various other things going on. And I, and I am the sort of business spine of our family, so day-to-day -day I do do a great deal of business, um, business-related stuff, the management of, of, of Tad's works. But um, what, so... 
in sort of it's an interim period for me at the moment between books and I am writing a, a funny dog page on Twitter um, which is huge fun because it takes me into um, all sorts of, of uh, other areas of things. First of all, I've had to make a, a good study of humour and humour writing, which has been just the most delicious thing to study. Um, secondly, working with the parameters of character and this character's voice, and it's essentially... On the one hand, it's 140 character jokes. It's one-liner jokes. On the other hand... 140 characters meaning Twitter feed length. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it, uh, I think of it as single panel, single illustration jokes like Far Side, essentially. Um, but all of that goes into words. And Twitter is a fascinating form because the compression really distills and strengthens the meaning within. So there's a tremendous amount of very, very, very good writing on there. Um, and I do many, many things with the character. It's based on one of our, one of our dogs. It's based on the most obnoxious of our dogs. He's truly a, a terrible, terrible dog to live with. I mean, if you were to read, it's, it's called at the symbol, Frankie understroke wa, W-A-H. And um, if you were to, uh, you know, sort of read it and look at it and, and think, well, you know, there's a tremendous amount of uh, piss and poop jokes. Mm -hmm. um, I try and not write as many of them. Our as, life is a poop joke. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I try and write not as many of them as the character actually lends itself to because I have to do something much more varied than that to keep people interested. And I do pace the jokes and the topics. I can also slide into the fabulous and the fantastical when I go into Frankie's conversations with other animals. I have one, somebody wrote to me the other day and called him that foul sage, which I thought was tremendous. <laughs> I was so pleased with that. What a great uh, Yeah, I was, I was just, I was really, oh, thank you so much. I always thought um, I was your foul sage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have... Um, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he has these conversations with other animals. One of the things that I have going on is I occasionally write a small, serious stream um, called Frankie and the Philosophy, uh, where his favourite flea and he discuss philosophy. And it allows me to write dog rule rhymes, basically. And I just live with no that in my... Intended. That's yeah, probably everyone intended. Um, that, anyway, that's what I'm doing. I've got 33,000 followers, which is very gratifying. I shall turn it into um, a book, a mug, and a T-shirt at some point. It's like a, it's like a good-sized town full of people with an inexhaustible fondness for poop jokes. It's, you know, and the thing is... I'm not sure I'd want to live is, in that town, actually. Well, the dog himself is so much worse than the character. It's true. It's true. I've, I've had people say to me on Twitter, now, this dog, you know, he cannot... He can't be that bad. And I'm going, you just... You do not know what... I mean, if I were to write about all of the awfulness... I would lose my followers. It wouldn't be humor. <laughs> <laughs> it would be horror. He's, he's, it would, wouldn't it? It would. Um, <laughs> he, yeah, he, yeah he, he, his name, as Deb mentioned, is Frankie Wah. He's a Chihuahua. That's why he's Frankie Wah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 
We won't. And he's uh, wild. He is very funny. Wild. He is very funny. Uh, he's a lot funnier when you're not the one who has to clean up after him. All uh, the time. All the time. Um, what am I doing? Well, I, I just, like, nothing I can say is going to sound anywhere near as important as, as Frankie and his, his uh, disgusting habits. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm working on new books, as usual. Um, I have finished... Um, the first volume of what are going to be a series of not my sort of standard big epic all absolutely connected. Um, these books I'm calling them Angel Noir for, for lack of another phrase. Um, the main character's name is, uh, well he's an angel and his, his name is Deloriel but his earth name is Bobby Dollar and what he is is an earthbound angel who is at the beginning of things, kind of a minor functionary in the ongoing Cold War between heaven and hell. He's an advocate for earthly souls after people die. So that's one of the reasons he's on Earth, is so he can properly understand and empathize with humans. Um, but of course, as always happens to these kinds of noir characters, he gets pulled into something or some things that are much bigger than anything he ever expected and rapidly finds himself um, with not only the, the, the enemies of hell against him, but his own allies proving to be not very trustworthy. So I finished the first book. These are, oh, one other thing about these that's significant is that um, they're a Little, they're shorter than my normal books. They're like half the length, which still makes them a fairly good-sized novel. Mm -hmm. But they're not like one of those those not skull than your fist. cracking blunt objects I normally <laughs> write. So, um, and the other thing about them is that I think people could actually read them out of order and still enjoy them. They're, they're each one has kind of a standalone quality, although obviously they will be easy, like, like any kind of like crime fiction, they're, they're, you, if you read them in order, you'll see the progression of what happens and all the details, which otherwise you won't, might only get in summary in, a, in a, you know, one of the later volumes. But you could still pick one up without having read the first one or whatever, and it would still make sense as a story, and it would have a beginning and a middle and an they're end to it. They're also a love story. That too, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but there, it is a love story in the sense of that he makes the really stupid mistake of having um, an affair with a, um, a, well, basically a demon from hell. And um, yeah, no, this is not an ex-wife joke. This is this is just an actual fact. And but of course, there's more to her than simply being a demon from hell. And his relationship with her becomes very, very complicated. Um, not only, I mean, obviously for the fact that they're on two different sides of a war that's been going on for billions of years, um, but all kinds of other reasons. And of course, her, the relationship is very caught up with all the things going on around them. So as I mentioned, the first book also, also though, I, one of the things about these is it, it's also, although it's, you know, it's noir in a lot of ways, it's dark and scary and all that stuff and very action packed, but I, I think it's also funny. And, and that's one of the it things is. that I've enjoyed because I'm writing it in the character's own voice. It's a first-person narration, which I haven't done as much of, but it's great fun because he's got a very cockeyed sense of humor. Yeah, I love it. I, this I, phrase. It always, I can't remember the line, but hell's own diaper. I no, the devil's own diaper. I, I don't remember. I, that was this, but wonderful. You, I'm so you can see she's been spending a lot of time with poop jokes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't actually remember that. I, I you'll have to remind me of where that was. But yeah. So so anyway, I've written the first book, which which is called The Dirty Streets of Heaven, and I'm just starting the second one, which is called Happy Hour in Hell, and. Um, 
in which, among other things, Bobby is going to have to actually go to hell to retrieve his girlfriend. The Countess of Cold Hands. Countess of Cold Hands, otherwise known as Kaz, because her name is Casimira. And then the third book is going to be called Sleeping Late on Judgment Day. And then after that, after those three, I'll see, you know, if people are enjoying them. Um, I'm enjoying writing them, so I may... That's always a good sign. Keep doing those for a while. Yeah. It's always a good sign. When the writers like them, the, that means that the readers tend to like them, too. Well, I hope so. But the thing is with me, to be honest with you, is that I'm really picky. And I mean, I've had people ask me over the years, oh, when are you going to write another such and such book? Which is always a very flattering question, because they're saying, I really liked something you already wrote. When are you going to write another one like that? But my thing is that I have to completely be in love with the idea um, to write it. So whenever I'm working on something, that's the idea that I've totally fallen in love with. Mm. So I'm pretty, I'm usually pretty involved with any of my work. I never, almost, almost never have ever written anything in my life because somebody said, oh, you ought to write this or this might be, you know, useful or, you know, I've done some things for other people who've said, oh, you know, can you write us a treatment for such and such? We're thinking of making a game or a film or something. But when I'm writing my novels, it's because that idea has seized me and, and it is, you know, become a, a great love of my life and I have to write it because I have to find out what happens. So, but this is definitely one of them. I am now totally into Bobby and his whole thing and I'm finding out things about the universe and life after death I never dreamed. It's quite astounding. Um, you'll have to read them because I'm, I'm going to tell you all about them. I can't wait yeah. and I can tell that they're going to be just as good as you say they are by so. the virtue of the passion you, with which you speak of them. I hope so. I'm very excited. Now do we have any questions from the audience? We kind of jumped that on you quickly. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> are you going to read something to us? I could. Yeah. Do we have time? Sure. Why not? Okay. Um, well, how much time do we have? He says, what? Seven. seven minutes. Got seven minutes? I've got, okay. well, I don't know if it's that short, but it's, it's about five pages, which is probably a bit more than seven. Should I try? Yeah. Okay. okay. This I'm is gonna, from Caliban's Hour. I'm going to read a section from Caliban's Hour. Oh, this is brilliant. This is, uh, Caliban's Hour is based on The Tempest. Um, this is the prequel and the sequel to The Tempest. The main character is Caliban, who in Shakespeare's play is a monster, but in my version, Caliban is uh, very much a thinking, feeling creature, and he has, he is telling Moran, he's found her 20 years after the events of The Tempest, he's telling her he's going to kill her for revenge, and he's going to tell her first why, and he's telling the story of his life and where she and her father, Prospero and the Magician, intersected his life on his desert island. So that's what's going on. It's one of he's our a, newly published e-books. He's a child at this point when Miranda and her father are shipwrecked on his shore. What did you think, Miranda, as your father slowly drew in the net? Did you think he was finding you a playfellow? Or trapping some oddly human but still particularly toothsome morsel for you to swallow and digest just as he caught deer and rabbits and fish? Did you glimpse for a moment the fact that he was doing both. After enough bits of cooked flesh had disappeared down my gullet from Prospero's hands, I began to loiter around the outskirts of the camp in plain view, but ready at any moment to bolt. Ah, but your father was sly. I suppose a man who can summon and control demons is well-versed in patient manipulation. He began to look at me, nothing more. From halfway across the beach, he would stand and regard me. 
I would stare into those glacial blue eyes of his for long moments, watching for anything that looked like hostile intent, prepared to spring away at any moment. Though Prospero fascinated me, I thought I was still looking over the walls of my separateness at an invader. I did not realize that he was already inside the citadel. Where once I had seen the faces of my mother's bitter dreams, now my sleep was haunted by that one face, cold, knowing eyes, thin, half-smiling lips, a brow like the rocks on the headland. One morning, when the sun was still only a glow behind the eastern hills, he came to the edge of the forest. He sat on the ground with his back to the trees and waited. I ventured closer, soundless as a caterpillar, but he knew I was there. Slowly, with a calmness meant to soothe my animal fears, he began to move his hands before him. Intrigued but blocked by the long, thin shape of his back, I eased along the forest fringe until I could see what he was doing. With a bowl full of water, he was moistening the fine dirt. As I watched, he began to form the mud into small, round shapes. Ah, your father's hands, his long, capable fingers, I watched them open-mouthed as they squeezed and patted, smoothed and shaped with a dexterity I could not understand, so different was it from my mother's crabbed twitching. Even years later, I remain amazed by your father's hands. That day, the first time I had ever seen their busy capability up close, I was enthralled. He found a slender stick and began breaking it into pieces. At the first crack, I shied, but Prospero did not look up. I held my ground as he began to wrap his rolls of clay around the twigs, his fingers sliding so quickly and gracefully that for long moments I watched them rather than the things they were shaping. But before long, it was impossible to ignore what was taking form. He had made a little doll, a mannequin, which could lie on its back in his cupped hand. He set it down and then made another, slightly smaller. When this was done, your father took a few drops of water from the bowl and flicked them at the two figures with whip-crack fingers, then reached into his robe. When he took his hand out again and fluttered it over the little doll's heads, a dusting of brilliant yellow and blue sifted down. Strangely, even to my untutored eye, all the blue dust stuck to one figure's head, but the yellow adhered to the top of the smaller. Still not raising his eyes, though I was so fascinated I might not have bolted even had he lurched toward me, your father lifted them up, held them close to his mouth, and breathed on them in turn as he spoke their names. Arlecchino, he said. Then, Columbina. As he spoke, first the blue-headed figure, then the golden, squirmed in his hands. I must have let out a gasp, for he smiled deep in his beard, but still did not turn toward me. Mind you, I was not civilized. To me, this trick was no more magical than catching a hidden fish in a deep pool or picking a leaf that made soup taste good. But unlike those other useful things, both of which I had seen my mother do, this was new to me. And even though I did not understand that this was magic, that back in Milan he might have been denounced to the church and burned in public for this harmless display, I was still delighted. Dance, Arlecchino, he said. Words and names alike meant nothing to me then, but I saw him perform this conjuration on other occasions, and once a similar but unpleasantly different version. Arlecchino, the faceless mud man, bowed, then began to dance. 
Slowly and carefully at first, as though he did not know himself whether his gelid legs could hold him or whether his tree-twig bones might not snap, the little doll began to caper. Dance, Columbina, whispered your father, and the golden-headed figure joined her mate. Prospero then slowly stood, but instead of moving any closer, he turned on his heel and walked away down the slope and onto the beach. The rush of the sea was in my ears, and for a moment I forgot the two mannequins to watch him go. He did not look back. He seemed impossibly tall. Arlecchino and his Columbina whirled and cavorted. I crept nearer, lowering myself until my face was at the level of their dance, but they were less frightened of me than I of them. Their sticky, nub-handed arms met, and they twirled about each other. Arlecchino lifted Columbina and tossed her in the air, then caught her as, he fe as she fell, although he stumbled for a moment and one of his legs lost a bit of clay. They went on that way for some time, then gradually slowed. At last, as if by mutual assent, they lay down side by side and stopped moving. And that's all I'm going to read. Thank you, Tad. That was beautiful. And I like that was a very nice way to run the presentation, bookended by your readings. Thank you very much. We've been having with us the fabulous and talented Tad Williams, his wife Deborah Beale. Their newest books are The Dragons of Ordinary Farm and The Secrets of Ordinary Farm. You can get the Caliban's, uh, our ebook, and they're all well worth your valuable reading time. Please come on up and say hi to Tad and Deborah and welcome them to our community. <laughs> Thank you, ladies Thank and gentlemen, you. for coming. We just moved here. <laughs> I think after telling them about Frankie, we probably shouldn't have. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.